the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushduni. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Calcine Report number 84, August 1972 One of the telling aspects of life and thought in old Russia was the rise and prevalence of nihilism. The history of nihilism as a movement and a philosophy competing with populism, Marxism, and other movements is an important one. But even more important, nihilism was a mood and an outlook which infected more than those who called themselves nihilist. The philosophical nihilists bowed to no authority and accepted no doctrine unless proven to their satisfaction. They were the fathers of anarchism. Bakunin, the great nihilist, was an atheist who called for the abolition of church, state, marriage, and the family, and private property. His thesis was, quote, be ready to die and ready to kill anyone who opposes the triumph of your revolt. Unquote. Very quickly, however, it became apparent that the nihilist anarchist youth were persons, as one of their number frankly stated, who had a quote, psychological unfitness for any peaceful work. Unquote. As a matter of fact, the anarchist Boris Savinkov made it as a test of membership. Quote, that only those psychologically unable to engage in peaceful work should enter the terrorist field and that, in general, one should not make the decision hastily, unquote. Boris Savinkov, Memoirs of a Terrorist, page 1377-85, New York, Albert and Charles Bonney, 1931. The nihilistic temperament was thus one of an apocalyptic love of destruction and an inability to work. It was a hatred of everything in the world at hand and a lust to kill, maim, and destroy as the means to peace and freedom. Only joy was in cynicism and destruction and activities were strongly suicidal. No law was recognized beyond their own will and desires. As Lita, by no means a philosophical anarchist, observed to herself in Michael Archibashev's novel of the early 20th century Russia, Sanin, quote, She had a right to do whatever she chose with her strong, beautiful body that belonged to her alone, unquote. The contemporary advocates of abortion hold to a similar faith. Without being philosophically self-conscious, they have absorbed the same nihilism with the same corrosive effects. Earlier than in Archbishop's, who favored the new mood, 
Dostoyevsky had bitterly attacked the same temper and its socialistic, anarchistic expressions, especially in his novel The Possessed or The Devils. The nihilistic mood in the people at large made the Russian Revolution possible. The socialist and communist were a very small minority. Success would have been impossible had not the widespread popular nihilism made for a ready acceptance of destruction. Today, a similar mood infects Soviet Russia's intellectuals and students. Peter Sadecki's Octobriana and the Russian Underground, New York, Harper and Row, 1971, gives us a vivid and documented glimpse of this present-day nihilism. The communist leaders fear and hate this temper and recognize its danger. They maintain the false face of a happy Puritanism in their empire when the reality is a bitter and unhappy nihilism. Sadeki quotes one youth as saying that they indulge in no assassinations and no revolutions. Quote, We're even milder than Gandhi. We don't even indulge in passive resistance. Unquote. The words of Lermontov are again the words of youth. Quote, all are alien to me and I to all. Unquote. They believe in, quote, in nothing, past, present, or future, unquote. Immorality, perversion, orgies, and insanity are their protests. As one girl remarked, quote, Life is an absurd torment anyway. We must simply get to the end of it as pleasantly as possible. Whatever it costs, there's nothing to be done about it, unquote. There is a suicidal retreat from and hatred of reality. The idea that communism is the savior of mankind and the architect of a better world, one from which oppression, exploitation, and misery are forever excluded, is viewed with contempt and cynicism. The new nihilists of the Russian Empire are the children of communism, and the true underground movement is the underground church, of which the Reverend Richard Brumbrand has kept the Western world informed. The new nihilists are sufficiently numerous so that production lags in the Soviet Union, because nihilists are not psychologically suited for peaceful, productive work. The new nihilists make the older nihilists look like optimists by comparison. Archibashev's hero, Sanin, did believe that a revolution offered hope. The modern nihilist has no hope. Throughout the world, in varying degrees, the nihilistic temper is widely present. It is not as hopeless as the Russian variety and is more destructive, as was the pre-1917 temper, but it is still nihilism. In traveling to many colleges and universities, I have found in secular and religious schools alike a widespread belief that mankind has no hope unless a total destruction works a clean sweep. More than a few students from good middle-class conservative homes have assured me that in 20 years people will be dropping dead everywhere from pollution and overpopulation, and the only hope is a massive revolutionary violence to stop the establishment in its tracks. After that, what? Here they grow vague. The basic impetus is a lust for nihilistic violence and destruction. But there is a difference. Increasingly, the new nihilism is directed against the doctrine of salvation by the state. 
the older nihilism was directed against Christendom. Now the bastions of liberalism and socialism are attacked. Why ask bewildered adults, do they attack the liberal Bank of America, the leftist universities, and the socialistic establishment? They attack it because it represents failure, frustration, and evil to them. Their contempt for Christendom is real, but the great enemy for nihilism today is the state and its gospel of salvation. They despair of and despise parliamentary government, but they also are cynical of Russia's dictatorship of the proletariat. There was a time when, under the influence of the Enlightenment, the words, quote, priest, unquote, and, quote, pastor, unquote, meant, quote, deceiver, unquote. Man's hope was in the state and its plan of salvation by the rational actions of political man. Now the word, quote, politician, unquote, gets the same unreasoning hatred that the word, quote, priest, unquote, and, quote, preacher, unquote, once aroused, and the same slander is applied to the new scapegoats of society. The nihilists believe in nothing except destruction and the apocalyptic value of destruction. By destroying, they hope somehow to bring in a paradise in which all dreams are suddenly realized. The new nihilist of Soviet Russia, despite all their nihilistic pacifism and contempt for life, still can write about the, quote, one salvation, the horizon, the longing for the horizon and what is waiting beyond it, unquote. Octobriana, page 75. This is a fantasy-oriented perspective, as is all nihilism. The nihilist denies reality and seeks to destroy it in the name of fantasy. For youth today, the hated reality is the state, the state and its allies who together make up the, quote, establishment, unquote. The state drafts youth into warfare. The state is the new God whose, quote, thou shalt not, unquote confront rebellious youth at every turn. The state and the family represent authority, and nihilistic youth is at war with authority. An Air Force officer has reported to us that one of the principal manifestations of psychological disorders encountered in the service is father hatred. To be under authority, to be indebted to any man or institution, is, for would-be gods, the ultimate in indignity. The state has become the target of most of this hostility, and the state has only succeeded with all its efforts in creating more hostility. Never before has the state subsidized more people with more benefits, benefits for child care, education, health, welfare, and much more, and never before has the state been more resented and hated. The state requires recognition of its authority to survive. But by undercutting biblical faith by means of a humanistic and statist education, the state has undercut not only the authority of the family and the church, but also, and most of all, its own authority. The more the state increases its power and services, the more it diminishes its authority. The age of the state is climaxing in the crisis of the state and its authority. The only valid alternative to nihilism is a biblical faith. The Westminster Confession defines faith thus, quote, The grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, by which also, and by the administration of the sacraments 
and prayer, it is increased and strengthened. Unquote. Without faith, man lives in a flat, one-surface world, the world of time. Because in such a world, time itself is meaningless, and a nihilistic cynicism reduces the world to change alone. Even that world is lost to man. He despises the reality around him. The man of faith lives in a world of time, against the background of eternity. Time rests in a cosmos of meaning and has implications in and from eternity. There is thus depth and perspective in such a world, and above all, meaning. Humanism, existentialist, rationalist, empiricist, etc., always ends in a nihilistic denial of and hatred for reality. It believes in, quote, nothing past, present, or future, unquote. It holds that, quote, life is an absurd torment, unquote. And the beginning of wisdom is to believe in no truth or wisdom. Sadeki observed of the girl in the communist youth underground who held life to be absurd and pushed the idea to the limits that this, quote, brought her to the edge of insanity and finally to the psychiatric hospital, unquote. Octobriana, page 30. Men cannot live without faith, and the collapse of false faiths is productive of strongly suicidal tendencies in modern man. The communist world is aware of this suicidal loss of faith in communism. It does everything possible to disguise and to conceal it. It cannot overcome it. The hatred for Christians, who are too helpless to be a revolutionary threat, is governed by a fanatical and vicious hatred for the hope, love, and faith which marks the believer. The most unspeakable tortures and indignities are perpetrated on Christian prisoners, as Wormbrand and others have reported. How dare the Christians have faith when others have none? How dare the Christians hope in God rather than the dictatorship of the proletariat? And how dare they seek to bind man to man in the love of grace and the grace of godly love, when only the state should provide social cement. Here's the irony of the Soviet Empire, the well-paid nihilistic youth and intellectuals who are the elite of the regime and live in material comfort are going out of their minds or are living in nihilistic despair and helplessness, whereas the brutally tortured and persecuted Christians live and pray in the assurance of God's victory. Here in the West, prayer can be backed by work, by Christian reconstruction. In every area of life, there is an urgent need to rebuild all things in terms of biblical faith. Humanists gravitate to status action because they can only believe in, quote, starting big, unquote, big expenditures, big schools, big organizations. We have a generation of men who fall under God's judgment. Quote, For who hath despised the day of small things? Unquote. Zechariah 4.10 Only as men value, honor, and work to establish small beginnings will great results ensue. The idiots of our day waste their time and money on beginning big, a national impact, a demonstration of epic proportions, and so on. They have the status mentality even in their hostility to the state. God's people work in terms of small beginnings and great results under God. They work in terms of reality because they work by faith. 
The nihilists who believe in nothing also believe in everything. By reducing all reality to nothingness by cynicism and doubt, they make all things equally meaningless and therefore equally valuable. The door is then opened to superstition, magic, occultism, and witchcraft, as in every era of nihilism. People who believe in nothing make all allegiance a matter of taste, and their taste runs to the occult and demonic. Those whose faith is in the God of Scripture have a standard and a grasp of reality to preserve them from the superstitions of nihilism. They look, quote, for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God, unquote. Hebrews 11.10 Men of faith cannot tell what the future will bring to them, but they know who brings it, and they know that God makes all things work together for good to them that love Him, to them who are called according to His purpose. Romans 8.28 The nihilists are all around us, and they are dangerous, as are all suicidal people, but they are also futile, because they have lost their hold on reality. They are in flight from life. As against them, the people of God must stand, not in terms of the past or present, not in terms of what they like, nor in terms of conventions, but in terms of the truth, Jesus Christ. As Tertullian wrote in On the Veiling of Virgins, quote, Christ did not call himself the conventions, but the truth, unquote. The conventions will go, the truth will endure and prevail. Galcedon Report number 85 September 1972 Lurking in the background of every system of thought is an implicit doctrine of infallibility. Men require in their philosophies and faiths an assurance that their way to truth is actually, potentially, or ultimately the true and certain guide. Various concepts of infallibility have been offered, although the word, quote, infallibility, unquote, has usually been avoided. The infallibility of the ascetic experience was thus the implicit faith of the philosopher Croce. The Enlightenment saw criticism as that sure guide, the intellectual critique of the philosophies. Quote, the organized habit of criticism, unquote, would eliminate superstition and religion and bring forth the pure light of truth. Hume, in his inquiry concerning human understanding, called for a grand book-burning of all works not ruled by, quote, criticism, unquote. These men believed, as Peter Gay points out, Peter Gay, The Enlightenment, Volume 1, page 141-145, New York, Knox, 1967, in, quote, The Omnicompetence of Criticism, unquote. They held that, quote, All things are equally subject to criticism, unquote, page 150, because, quote, Criticism, unquote, by the autonomous mind of man is the sure guide to truth. Other concepts of infallibility, the scientific method, etc., can be cited. When the state began to claim priority over man, like the philosophies, the scientists, and the aesthetics who were to follow, it too claimed to be infallible. Such claims by the state were not uncommon in antiquity. In Frederick II, 1194 to 1250, the medieval church faced a great antagonist who boldly claimed infallibility. Kantorowicz wrote of him, quote, His knowledge of natural law now reinforces his unity with God and further established his infallibility. For he goes on to say, 
therefore we scorn to err. The Pope, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, may be infallible in matters of faith. Similarly, the Emperor, overfilled by justitia, is infallible in matters of law. In accordance with this imperial infallibility, Frederick adopted, as the Norman kings before him had done, the sentence of Roman law, to discuss the emperor's judgments, decrees, and statutes as sacrilege, a sentence that was so vital to the constitution of the whole state that Frederick boldly quoted it to the pope when he ventured to criticize some measure of the emperor's. Unquote. Ernst Kantorwitz, Frederick II, 1194 to 1250, page 232, New York, Unger, 1957. Frederick saw himself as, quote, law incarnate upon earth, unquote, page 233. He held also that, quote, it is sacrilege to debate whether the man is worthy whom the emperor has chosen and appointed, unquote, page 235. The doctrine of the divine right of kings was a form of this doctrine of the infallibility of the state. In 1660, in the trial of the men who had executed Charles I of England for his treason to the state, the presiding judge, Sir Orlando Bridgman, asserted this doctrine bluntly. Quote, the trial opened on Tuesday, October 9, 1660, with the presiding judge's charge to the jury. Bridgman traced the legal position of the monarchy from the earliest time showing that no single person or community of persons had any course of power over the King of England, that the King was supreme governor, subject to none but God, and could do no wrong, and that if he can do no wrong, he could not be punished for any wrong. Unquote. Patrick Mora, 1660, The Year of Restoration, page 184, Boston, Beacon Press, 1960. This idea of infallibility did not disappear with kings. Instead, it was transferred to democracies and to socialism. The dictatorship of the proletariat is the infallible voice of history for Marxists. In democracy, the old pagan principle prevails. Vox populi, vox dei. The voice of the people is the voice of God. Politics thus has become a major area of messianic and infallible activities. Francis Stevenson Lloyd George's secretary recorded at the 1919 Peace Conference a suppressed paragraph of Woodrow Wilson's opening speech in which Wilson explained quote, how Christianity had failed in its purpose after 2,000 years but the League of Nations was going to go one better than Christianity and would supply all defects A.J.P. Taylor Editor Lloyd George A Diary by Francis Stevenson New York Harper the modern state increasingly sees itself as man's savior and as the infallible voice of man and history. It seeks progressively to eliminate criticism and to become the effectual God of the world. When humanism began to divorce the idea of infallibility from God and His Word and to attach it to men and institutions, one of the immediate results was that a variety of claims to infallibility resulted. This power and authority having been separated from God was thus, quote, up for grabs, unquote, by men. The medieval university was one such claimant, and it sought to instruct kings and popes as the voice of infallible reason. The doctrine of academic freedom is an aspect of this claim to infallibility. 
The academy is beyond control by men because it is in its freedom, the infallible source of truth. The artist was another claimant to infallibility. Previously, he had been an artisan, a businessman whose activity was the arts. Whether an architect, sculptor, painter, or writer, he was a working man of practical status and function. With the rise of humanistic versions of infallibility, the artist developed. He became self-consciously a new kind of prophet, outside the normal affairs of men and beyond the control of law. The Bohemian idea of the artist developed. Instead of being a skilled and disciplined artisan, he was now supposedly an inspired man. The artistic frenzy and studied irresponsibility were systematically cultivated. The less normal and the less sane an artist acted, it came to be held the more he was inspired. As men denied the supernatural, inspiration was sought, not from above but from below. It was necessary to break laws to cultivate chaos and primitivism in order to reach the fountains of the new inspiration and the new infallibility. This meant the end of disciplined art and the rapid development of, quote, spontaneous, unquote, and unthinking art. It meant, too, that a premium was placed on being more and more irresponsible, lawless, and primitive as evidence of inspiration. All this was not unrelated to development in politics. When inspiration and infallibility were transferred from God to man, it was at first kings who exercised this power, then parliaments and assemblies. But as the source of power moved from above, God, to below, evolution, chaos, and the primitive, authority also moved downward. It moved from kings to the aristocracy, from the aristocracy to the middle classes, from the middle classes to the lower classes, and now from the lower classes to the criminals and psychopaths. It is not the Negro as such who is favored in this new mood, but the lawless Negro. It is not the working man who is now the hero of the left, but the criminal and the welfare recipient. Power and authority have moved downward. As a result, the children of the upper, middle, and lower classes increasingly ape the hoodlum and the psychopath. They imitate the new prophets of history by wearing their hair long, by being lawless, and by despising authority, because they have come to believe in the infallibility of existential moment and its experience. Moreover, as men look for the infallible word and experience downward, they will soon look beyond the criminal and the psychopath to the demonic and occult. As a result, there is already a widespread interest in magic and witchcraft, and various forms of Satanism flourish and abound. Those who are busily and religiously seeking the newest inspired voice are in eager pursuit of the newest and most extreme from the occult authority. The morality of God's infallible word, it is held, must give way to the new morality of the new infallibility of existential experience. Not too long ago, a prominent Hollywood actress committed suicide because she was pregnant by a prominent actor who refused to marry her. Today, some young actresses are deliberately giving birth to children out of wedlock with as much publicity as possible in order to gain the approval of the, quote, now generation, unquote, those to whom the existential moment is the infallible and inspired word. Immoralism is now a matter of boasting. In many circles among youth, there is a new Phariseeism 
pretending to be sexually prolific even when one is not, in order to gain acceptance as intelligent and modern. The voice of the people is the voice of God in terms of democratic thinking, but increasingly, quote, the people, unquote, are defined in terms of the lowest common denominator, so that the standards are brought down to the level of the lowest of the low. Men worship the fountain of this new infallibility, the primitive and the outlaw. Some years ago, I sat next to an anthropologist who spoke with strong emotion about the nobility and beauty of a backward people whose habits under discussion hardly bear repeating even today. He despised our middle-class culture, although personally very neat and clean. He rhapsodized over the filth of his, quote, unspoiled, unquote, tribe. Such attitudes are routine now. A few days ago, in a television film of a native culture, natives were shown picking and eating lice and fleas out of each other's hair. Meanwhile, the narrator, with reverent tones, spoke of how wonderfully these unspoiled people lived. I recall the wry comment of a very able Christian Negro, and he faced the ultimate in disadvantages in America. Racists disliked him for his color, and liberals and radicals disliked him for being Christian, peaceful, and prosperous. As a result, the state, which once gained great power as it claimed infallibility for itself, now finds that its source of inspiration the people, is its major problem. A disintegrating force has been unleashed by the belief that power and authority lie downward so that the state is faced with the corrosive pressures of anarchy. Its response is a suppressing coercion, but coercion does not answer the problem of authority. The new nihilism in the Soviet Union is a major threat, as is the same mood in the United States. Men who have become their own gods and their own infallible oracles will not submit to any authority. There can be no return to legitimate authority until men return to the faith that establishes that authority. The infallible power is not man but God. The infallible word is not in or from man but in and from God alone. The greater man's pretensions, the greater his emptiness becomes as E. E. Cummins expressed this emptiness after World War I. I am a bird cage without any bird, a collar looking for a dog, a kiss without lips, a prayer lacking any knees. In Cummings' poetry, man was empty. His, quote, I, unquote, had become an insignificant, quote, I, unquote, not deserving a capital letter because man and life had become meaningless. In the poetry of Wallace Stevens, death also became meaningless. Modern man has no hope or dreams, only nightmares. Quote, and that's life, then, things as they are, unquote. When man looks within for his inspiration, when he seeks it in man as such, the more faithfully he looks, the closer he comes to the grim fact that man is nothing apart from God. Man is a creature who can only be known, understood, and interpreted in terms of God's infallible word. The institutions of man, church, state, school, family, and all things else are only to be known and understood in terms of God's word. To attempt the understanding and development of anything apart from God is to take a toboggan ride to meaninglessness, despair, and anarchy. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. 
Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he had by his paying the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me. Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows 
or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.